0: You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Total Onslaught, Episode 2 with Walter Feit. This afternoon we're going to talk about the story of Jesus. It's actually a very beautiful story and quite a sad story in many senses as well. This is a little map of where Jesus spent most of his life. He spent some time down in Egypt as a little boy, as a baby. And most of the stories about Jesus revolve around this area here, of cities like Chorazim, Capernaum, Cana, Bethsaida, all of these, Nazareth, that's the area where most of his teaching took place. And as we go down over here, of course, you come to Bethlehem down there and Jerusalem, and this is the great salt sea up there, the Sea of Galilee. The story of Jesus is a story that is a story of someone who is a shepherd, someone who leads his people. Now, in my country, when I look at a shepherd, It doesn't make much sense, because a shepherd in my country drives sheep ahead of him. And they have dogs to herd the sheep, to get them through a particular gate. And the dogs run, and they take them this side, and they get them on that side, and they funnel them, as it were. And the sheep are actually a little bit terrified during this whole process. And so the idea of a shepherd leading his sheep is something pretty strange. But this is a typical Middle Eastern picture where shepherds are totally different, where the shepherd leads and the sheep follow. You can see all these sheep are facing the shepherd, which is totally different to what is the case in other countries. Here's a typical shepherd scene in uh, the Middle East where you have your shepherd and his little flock of sheep around him. And again, they're all facing him. Isn't that cute? I like that. And uh, this man had such a nice rugged face, I had to photograph him. Here we took a little video of a typical shepherd scene. Again, the sheep are there, the shepherd's over there, and they trust their shepherd. And let's watch this. He walks, the sheep walk. (laughs) They don't let him get away. They're very attached to their shepherd. That's a beautiful picture of how Jesus depicts himself as a shepherd. He leads out, and we follow. The story of Jesus is the most amazing story that has ever transpired in the universe. And everywhere, unfortunately everywhere, where you go in the Middle East, they will have made a holy site out of all these places, and people believe that there is some sanctity in going to these holy sites. It's nice to, to be there, and it's nice to see them, but uh, there is no sanctity in a place. You can meet Jesus as effectively in your little room as you can over here. Of course, if you want to expand your knowledge and see what it was like in those areas, then that's a different story. But to go there to get a special grace, that is a deception. So this is apparently the cave where the shepherds were that evening, and you can see they have a star there on the floor, as they were informed of the birth of Jesus and in this cave they have put down a church with the reliefs on the sides of the shepherd boys in the in the environment when the angel came to tell them that Jesus had been born in bethlehem they must have been out in a field like this so the time of year when this happened could not have been the 25th of december which happens to be the birthday of all the pagan main deities like Osiris and Zeus and all of them, because the shepherds were out in the field. That means it must have been in a temperate time and not in the middle of winter, as the 25th of December would depict. This over here is the field of Ruth. That's a nice story, the story of Ruth the Moabites, which is another story in the Bible which tells us that God does not reject nations. Even though Moab was an apostate nation, someone out of Moab accepted Jesus as their personal Savior. They didn't know him as such because he wasn't born yet, but they believed that the God of the Israelites was the true God and was to be their God as well. This is the city of Bethlehem where Jesus was born. And some beautiful sights there. Who's been there? Ah, great. Some beautiful sights. The people there are magnificent to watch. It's like being transported back into the Middle Ages, in a sense. And uh, this old man over here is very impressive. There are lots of these rugged faces around. And as you walk these streets, it's really fascinating. I was there quite a few times. It's quite a dangerous area to be around in. In, case, in fact, in one instance, we were stoned and uh, managed to survive that one. In other instances, we were the only ones that were traveling backwards and forwards between the uh, Israeli side and the Lebanese side. Fascinating stories the Israelis come and they put up a a fence. (laughs) They just put it up. And everybody this side stays that side. Everybody that side stays that side. But they happened to put this fence right through this man's property. And this was our tour guide. And so he was the only tour guide who had a license to be on both sides. That was quite interesting. So we were the only ones who were allowed onto both sides. Everybody else had to stay on their side. I think that's Divine providence. I think the Lord helped us there. And it was terrific because you could go into places nobody could go because everything was sealed off. We had the place to ourselves. I've been to Bethlehem and other places when you cannot move for all the tourists. I mean, there are hundreds of tourists in these churches. You stand in queues forever. We had the church all to ourselves, totally empty. We could go to all these sites. It was marvelous. And the tour guides... They were desperate for money. So they would sneak you into places you'd never normally go to. That was very nice. So something good can come out of something bad. Typical scenes of the marketplace. This is a butcher, if you would like to purchase your meat. There it hangs. And uh, there's a tremendous buzz around as you go and purchase your meat. So I'm not so sure whether that's a good idea. This man over here tried to sell me this chicken and he was adamant that I had to buy this chicken. It was on the hoof, it was alive. And uh, he wouldn't let me go. I told him I'm not interested in buying this chicken but he wouldn't let me go. So he haggled with me and he wouldn't let me, he ran after me, he insisted I buy that chicken. Eventually it drove me nuts. So I said, okay, I'll bargain with him for his chicken. And so I bargained him down and down and down and down and down and down for his chicken until he got angry with me, which was very good. And I bargained more and I bargained more. And eventually he got angry and he says, "There, you can have it for nothing. And I told him I'm a Vegetarian that was the look on his face. Total incredulity. He didn't believe that something like this was possible. But then he laughed afterwards, and we made good friends. This is a typical bakery there. And uh, I must say, it doesn't look too hot, does it? No, you know. Well, anyway, bread is bread and baked in the oven. It's probably fine. And... uh, Women weren't allowed in here because that's not fit for a woman, a place like that where you bake bread. Try and tell that to Blazhenka at the back there. I don't think she would agree. And uh, nevertheless, this is the famous church of the nativity where Jesus was born, or so they say. We never know whether these holy sites are the sites. Some of them probably are pretty accurate, and that this could represent the place where Jesus was born. And these, of course, these sites were chosen very early on in the history, and this particular one by Constantine's mother, and she found that this was the site, and so they built this church, which was, of course, a Byzantine church, which means it was Orthodox. And so there's been a tremendous war in this area between the Orthodox and the Catholics who claim these sites for themselves. This war was not resolved until the ecumenical movement came along, and so this church now is shared by the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church, and they alternate the masses in there. Now, when you come into this place, you have to enter a little door that's very low, so you have to bend down, and that is to show a sign of respect and humility, so you have to crawl through it, as it were. And as you see, the church was totally empty when we were there. Not a soul there. When I was there the previous time, it was packed. And the floor is actually a false floor, and the real floor is underneath and still has the original mosaic from Constantine's time. So this is a very ancient church. And of course, being a holy place, it is filled with mythologies and histories, That probably never took place. But it was interesting to me, the sunbeam that came in to this church while I was there. And there, up against the one pillar, you have these holes over here. Can you see them? And what are these holes? Well, the legend goes that Mary appeared in the church one day. And then she took her fingers and made them in the shape of a cross like this. And she went up against the pillar and went... And there were the holes. There they were. Those are Mary's fingers that made the holes. And if you put your fingers into the holes, they say you receive a special blessing. Now, as I looked at those holes, I saw that the edges were pretty much chipped and what have you. I think it was a very poor drill job that they did over there. If it really was divine, they would have been burnt in there very neatly. So this is a type of story that attracts the people and you will be amazed how in normal times they line up in long queues and put their fingers in there and really believe that they will receive a special blessing from Mary if they put their fingers into there. Now, the church, of course, previously had been lower. I showed you that the lower floor that was covered by the boards was considerably lower than the present floor. So if you want to go down to the original place where they claim the crib of Jesus stood, you have to go down these steps and you enter into the sepulcher, and there it is. And this is where, apparently, the crib stood, on that very spot over there. So if you put your hand over there, you can get this day still an absolution from the Roman Catholic Church. That means all your sins are forgiven by just going poop, touching that spot. And in fact, in some of these spots, you can have your sins forgiven 90 days in advance. So if you're planning the mother of all parties, it's good to go and put your hand there, you know, and for three months you can just hang loose. That's pretty neat. And no questions asked, no penalties forthcoming from heaven. Now, we were there at a time when there was no one there, which was surprising. So when we actually did arrive there, there's, nobody should have been there. These people were very, very surprised. They were busy with their normal rituals, and uh, we sort of interrupted this ritual, which did not particularly please them. But uh, we had a camera there, and I took pictures with my camera, have seen the looks. I'll show you one just now that we got. And this is now an Orthodox Mass in the basement, in the cellar of this church, where normally one should not be. Here they are. This is how they were dressed in black hoods. They look more like members of the Ku Klux Klan than they do like monks. These are Orthodox monks saying a particular Mass. And uh, here is sort of what transpired. Is there sound? Man's very angry with us for photographing this now that man over there I think if looks could kill I would have been gone he doesn't look too friendly huh? (laughs) so this is the type of ritual that goes on I don't know what type of mass that was but uh, interesting nevertheless and then when the orthodox people leave then the Roman Catholics come in and they do their thing. Here is a group of pilgrims in the Roman Catholic setting. There's one lady over there. She's got three crosses in front of her, and her face is covered. And it's a good place, they say, to come if you want to be totally cleansed of whatever your problem is. Outside this church, they have Euronymous' statue, writing over there, scriptures, They have the skull down there. This is also occult, of course, the question of death and life and cycles of death and life. And going down, down into the basement of the church, we find this cave. Apparently, this is the cave, so they say, where Mary actually gave birth. But you'll also notice the triple arches, which are typical of paganism, And so, whether this is so or whether this was a pagan site, I cannot tell. Also, in the basement of this church, you will find the skulls of what they say are the skulls of the babies that Herod had killed. I don't particularly believe that either, but uh, that is what they say. And down there, that's one of of them that I photographed down there. On one occasion while I was there, a bomb exploded and a place where I'd just been a few seconds previously. So, quite a dangerous place. Here's another cave, and in this cave there's also a Marian shrine, and they claim that this is where Mary nursed her infant. Why the places should be different? I don't know. The one where she was born, and they even have the cave where Joseph waited while Mary was given giving birth in the other room. So, Very interesting. When you come to this one, this is called the Milk Shrine. And uh, when you enter that, it's called Milk Grotto, La Grotto Dule. And inside you go, it's another cave, church built into a cave, another pagan symbol over there. And up against the walls, you have these white splotches. And these are certified by Rome with certification from the papacy that that is the milk of Mary that squirted against the walls when she yes, this is serious stuff when she was nursing Jesus so the guide who was there was very excited about showing us this and you can receive special unction there's the certificate of approval from the Vatican saying that these are genuine milk splotches of Mary So I said to the guide, you know, I've been in the other caves as well, and there are similar white splotches against the walls. These are calcium carbonate deposits from rain. He says, yes, in the other caves, but not this one. (laughs) This is milk. This is milk. This is the famous milk grotto. And if you go down, they have all these little sub caves, and there you can see this typical icon in one of them, now, this is actually paganism. This is the Isis legend. You see, in the Isis legend, Mary, Mary takes the place of Isis. And Isis was also the queen of fertility. After all, she managed to bear Horace while her husband was dead by reconstructing him. And so, if people had fertility problems, they would particularly pray to Isis and that would solve their fertility problems. If they had nursing problems, then they would pray to ISIS, and then the milk would flow. That is ancient paganism resurrected in modern Christianity in these places. Jesus, of course, survived the slaughter of Herod, and the family went down to Egypt, so the Bible tells us. And they spent some time in Egypt, and then in time again for the boy to obtain his manhood, as it is the custom in Israel, returned from Egypt, and they lived in Nazareth. That's what the Bible tells us. Now, if we go down to Egypt, this is the very spot where, apparently, the Holy Family came. And they have these icons down there. Again, the Orthodox Church in these places has these particular so-called holy sites. And this is the story of Joseph and his family coming down to Egypt. And one of the most famous churches there is the Coptic Orthodox Patriarchy, Monastery and Virgin Mary Church in Adavia in Egypt. There's a very, very famous church. And just a few years ago, I forget exactly how many years ago, but in the late 90s, somewhere... Mary appeared in this, there were apparitions of Mary in this place and the Muslim world went totally ballistic. Of course it couldn't have been Mary because that's not biblical but nevertheless apparitions took place over here in this patriarchy and uh, here you can see some of the icons in that church, some of the symbolism and it just happened to be Palm Sunday when we were there so The patriarch over here was carrying um, things made of palm leaves. Here's also the story in this church, the flight of the Holy Family to Egypt, of how they moved down uh, from where they were down to Egypt. And they have the story of how they came down with the River Nile and stayed in this particular place. And it's fascinating that this church also has the miracle book, sort of copying what happened. This book, this very heavy book, came floating down the Nile one day. And uh, being a holy site, the people here really are fervent to receive these blessings. This is the book that came floating down the Nile, and it was open on a particular page, also very interesting. That is it, a closer look at that. And there's a little plaque of what happened and on which page it was open. Now, it's a metal-bound book, but it didn't sink. It floated. You know, like the axe, so they say. And it says, the Floating Bible. On Friday, 12 March 1976, after the morning liturgy, the people noticed an object floating on the water near the steps where the Holy Family had embarked. Some members of the church came down and found it was a Bible floating on the water open at Isaiah 19.25. Blessed be Egypt, my people. Despite the inundation of the water and the heaviness of the book, it was still afloat, and this was considered a miracle by the people, a sign of God as a special blessing towards them. that's a fascinating text that they quote there, Isaiah 19.25. Of course, it doesn't say only that. It's a, a text that talks about the end times and says, blessed is, there will be a blessing in Egypt and in Assyria and in Jerusalem, meaning that God's people's message will have reached even the heathen nations and many will accept the righteousness of Christ. Sort of a, a nice prophecy about end time fulfillments, but they just took up that little piece and popped it in there to make it seem as if they were the real people, which is actually what the Quran also does, saying that Ishmael is the true heir and not Jacob. This is the place where this Bible came floating down the river. Now, while we are in Egypt, I just want to show you one place that I found very fascinating. It's a place called the Dump City. This is the most horrendous place I've ever seen in my entire life. As you come through the streets of Cairo, now Cairo has about 50 million people living in Cairo and surrounds. It is the most chaotic city on the face of the planet. There is nothing like it. It's Armageddon waiting to happen. But can you imagine the dump and the filth and the garbage of that city. Now, in normal cities, what do you do with garbage? You take it out, and you put it onto dumps somewhere outside the city, or you incinerate it, or you do whatever. Can you imagine 50 million people living in an environment like that? And they take their dump, their garbage, and they take it to the poor area, and they dump it in the street? And these poor people sift through all the garbage, and they live amongst the garbage. This is literally a city of rubbish within a city. If you take pictures, they get very angry. So my pictures are not very good. They're sort of taken like this, you know, sort of like that. They would, they would literally kill you if they saw you take a picture. But what's amazing about this city is that as you come through the dump city, there's a portal, and this is the portal. And when you come through it, you're suddenly in a totally different world. I'll show you what it looks like. It's amazing. This is when you come into the dump city. And this is how the people live over there. One cannot imagine it. My heart really went out to them. This is what it looks like. Whole rooms full of just garbage. And they live in there. This is their, this, these are their houses. And uh, all of these rooms, all of the buildings, everything is garbage. And you can see the dump trucks coming in by their hundreds. The traffic jams are unbelievable. Now, every street looks like this. This is just one street. These are all the dump trucks coming in, offloading their garbage. The stench is unbelievable. For, for us, just to travel through, we didn't even touch anything. I got trench mouth and... Uh-huh. The whole rest of our team had diarrhea after just going through there. That's it. It is unbelievable. The germs in there are killer bugs. And these people must have an immune system second to none. Here you can see the traffic jams and the garbage and the filth lying all over. The pictures are not very good. They're shaky. Here comes a donkey bearing a load of rubbish to be dumped in the city. There it is. A whole pile of rubbish. This man is having his tea next to his rubbish dump. Can you see that? Where he's sort This is rubbish he has sorted. Probably his only value in life. And these little kids living and walking amongst rubbish. Can you believe that? It is horrendous. I just want to grab this little kid and put her in a, in a nice, clean, safe environment. It is shocking. The stores. There lies the rubbish. Here is the store. And as you come through that portal, suddenly you're in a different world. It's just its just like that. It's beautifully clean. And there stands this little Orthodox church and hewn rock all around. And all of this is hewn out of solid rock. It's unbelievable, this little Orthodox church. So there it is. It's the church of St. Bola. And... You can see, it is absolutely amazing. Over here, there's an amphitheater. And one man, one man, one orthodox Polish man spent his life here. A young man, a young man went here, and he sculpted the entire little city. And there's the amphitheater that he dug out, probably with some help from the environment. And that's him. That's the man. He did all the work that you will see. Unbelievable. And the entire walls of this rock city are chiseled out with the story of Jesus. In the middle of a Muslim world, you come through a city of dump and rubbish and garbage and you're in this beautifully clean place with this little chapel and the story of Jesus written over the walls. Jesus... uh, With the shepherd's boys over here at the time of his birth, depicted over there, the story of his birth, all of this chiseled into solid rock. I am the good shepherd chiseled out of solid rock. The stories of the Bible, the walking on the water, and uh, the woman at the well, for example. And these are huge sculptures. Just to give you an idea, this is a sheer face rock, rock face with... uh, some chiseled material on it. Any large boulder has been transformed into a work of art of Jesus. This is the story of Lazarus coming out of his tomb. That's the story of Jesus coming out of his tomb. And one of, you can just get the size here. This is the sheer rock face where he's been working. And he chiseled all of this. And there you have the tremendous story of Jesus, let's get closer, Uh, while he was blessing them, he ascended into heaven. And the next one is, uh, we'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. One man having transformed the area into an area of hope. I was very impressed. and That's more or less what the world is like. You come through this world which is represented by the city of, of dumps. And as you come through, the only hope that you can have to make it to the other side is the story of Jesus. I will see the Son of Man come with the clouds with great power and glory, and there will be no more city of dumps. The story of Jesus is probably the most heart-rending story that has ever been told. I know many films have been made And even this latest film that has been made cannot even touch on what happened to Jesus and what his life must have been like. When they came back to Jerusalem, well, Jerusalem today is a totally different city. It's a city of pilgrimages. People in their thousands undergo pilgrimages. Here you have a group of nuns leading a pilgrimage behind the cross. And people are filled with a kind of euphoria. They've been to this place, they've experienced it, but if a place takes the place of Jesus, then we have a problem. This is the Wailing Wall, and uh, there you have the famous Dome of the Rock in the background. This Wailing Wall is not part of the original temple, it's part of the outer court of the temple. Here up the stairs, you can go into this area. Today you're not allowed in there anymore. They stopped us over here so I took this picture just through the crack. That's a replica of what the temple looked like. And here's a huge column that was to be part of that temple. So that gives us an idea of the size of the original temple. This one was never used because it had a crack in it. And that is probably a normal size replica of the menorah. This is one that they have made in case they restore Uh, The temple site. These are the Jews at their wailing wall. And you notice all these little letters stuck into the wall over here? People come here, they write their little letters of whatever their dreams in life are, and they stick them in there. Here's a little short video. all of these very orthodox, very sincere Jews standing in front of that wall, showing their reverence towards a wall. I wondered to myself if they only knew the rock of their salvation. If they could only understand that there is no salvation in a, in a brick wall. The only salvation is in the one that it represented. People today tend to make holy sites out of places. Isn't that sad? And then they miss the one that it is supposed to represent. Underneath the wall, there's a tunnel, and it's called the secret passage. And as you go through it, you can also come into the back of this place, and you can see where the highly orthodox Jews and rabbis come together. Now, normally, these people will just ignore you. But times have changed. I was stunned. Normally if you as a, as a pagan come into this place, they will detest you. They will give you a faulty look. What is this unclean fellow doing in such a holy site? I was stunned. This time when I was there, as I went into this place, it was just a few months ago, most of these rabbis would come and beg for money, something they would never have done even two, three years ago. Things must be really tough in that place for them to do that. But this is their holiest site here where you have these remnants of the ancient wall. And just above on the other side stands the Dome of the Rock. Here's an Orthodox uh, rabbi uh, going through his ritual. Notice that he has uh, the commandments on his forehead, the law, the Torah, and he has them on his hand. Because the Bible said you must bind them on your forehead and bind them on your hand. Do you think that's what God had in mind, that you make a replica and put it over there and then the job's done? Or do you think God had in mind that you must think accordingly and act accordingly? Doesn't that make more sense? I think that makes more sense. Here's a typical stone from that ancient temple site. This was a Herod stone. If it had these, this recess, then you know that it was a stone from the original temple, So when they reused the stones of the temple, they built them into all kinds of structures and walls. So this must have been an original temple stone of the temple today in another wall. This is the um, grave of David. And just like in Catholic sites, the Jews will come over here. This is the baptismal site of Jesus, and this is actually where the story starts. The story tells us that when Jesus was baptized, The voice of God was heard saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And from there the Bible tells us that Jesus was taken into the wilderness to be tempted. And Matthew chapter 4 verse 2 says, And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterwards hungry. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread said the devil. Now, it's an interesting statement. If you are the son of God, so first he questions God's validity, God's word, and God's son, as to his genuineness, and then he challenges him to command the stones to be made bread. And Jesus answers, it is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Of course, you need a King James Version to read that. If you don't have the King James Version, uh, you will have to stop over there because the rest won't be in your Bibles. But nevertheless, that's another story. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, we think that the temptations weren't Tremendous temptations, but they really were because in these temptations, Jesus met every condition of fallen man. Every condition. The first thing that Adam and Eve had done is they had partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, appetite, it was good for food, was one of their first problems. Here Jesus conquered after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, where Adam and Eve failed in all the splendor and luxury that they had. Conquering appetite and conquering doubt. If you are the Son of God, did God really say that? So here Jesus conquers the sin of doubt, and he conquers the sin of human appetite and passion all in one, and the temptation must have been much worse than it was for Adam and Eve. This is today the highest site of the ancient wall, and uh, we don't have the temple, which must have stood over there somewhere, so originally the devil must have taken him to this wall somewhere over here where the temple stood and threatened to throw him down. Let's go to this site over here, that's that spot, that gives you an idea of the height, And the second temptation is, if you are the Son of God, again, the same question, cast yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning you. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest at any time you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answers again and says, it is written, again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. This is the second great temptation of mankind. And it is a sad fact, if we listen to the lectures that we did yesterday, then this is the sin that most of mankind is succumbing to. It's the sin of presumption. The sin of presumption. Imagine two people trying to solve a crisis on the other side of the road, whatever it is, a child in trouble or whatever. The one runs across the road saying, I am the child of God, God will protect me. (laughs) And he runs across the road. Another one comes and says, God, there is a crisis on the other side. Help me across this road. And he runs across the road. The two to the outside observer are absolutely identical. But the one is presumption and the other one is faith. Can you see how close they are together? That's how close they are together. And in the modern Christianity, most of the movements today are practicing presumption, power religion, whereas faith is something totally different. And Jesus could have thrown himself down, because this is what it says in the Bible, but it is written, you shall not be presumptuous. The third one, the devil took him up on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now people say, now surely Jesus knew that he was God and that he was going to win. In any case, why should he do this? But this was not only the question that was being asked over here. The devil had him alone. And Satan in all his glory said, I will surrender it all to you again without you having to die if you will just once bow down. And, of course, the sin to be overcome here is the sin of the love of the world. And I believe most people will be lost because of this very particular temptation. Go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Love of the world will not get us anywhere. So in these three temptations, Jesus basically conquers on behalf of man the major temptations which we all have to face in one form or another. And then, of course, he departed to the Sea of Galilee. And uh, on the way there, there is this quaint little town. It's called Ma'alula. And this is the only little town left in the whole world where the language that is spoken is Aramaic. Now, this is the language that Jesus spoke. And uh, So it's nice to go there. It's a nice, neat little place, and it's also an Orthodox place, largely, and Orthodox and Muslim, and they speak Aramaic, and the little kids speak only Aramaic. They're very, very strict in their Aramaic, so it's nice to hear what it sounds like. Here is one of these Orthodox priests doing service in that particular place. And uh, we went to him and asked him whether he wouldn't pray the Lord's Prayer for us in Aramaic so that we could hear what the language of Jesus was like. And uh, I'll share that with you. you. <laughs> And that was the Our Father in Aramaic. The Sea of Galilee, an amazing place. This is the uh, supposedly one of the sites. There's more than one site, but this is one of the sites where the wedding to Cana apparently took place, and you can see the jars over there. That's what the original jars actually looked like, and like this, those were the rough stone jars that they first poured it in, then they kept it in these jars of clay. And this over here is the city of Jesus. This is where Jesus actually performed most of his work and did most of his preaching, the city of Capernaum. And I'll take you in there in the next session. Let us go to the city of Capernaum, which is known as the town of Jesus. This over here is a very famous site. Now, if you look at it, it looks like nothing. But actually, on top of it, there's a huge building built right over it. There you can see the concrete pillars and some of the concrete floor. What is this? This is the house of Peter. This was the house of Peter. Peter lived here, and that was his home, and Jesus must have spent many times in that house. Whether it is the house of Peter, no one really knows, but the Roman Catholic Church claims that this is the house of Peter. And if you want to see what's built above it, there it is. A huge concrete structure standing on pillars over the house of Peter. And it says there, Blato Petro Apostolo. This is the place where Peter stayed. And Peter, of course, means pebble, little rock. And Rome has built its church on this Peter. And there they have a statue of Peter right outside of it with a fish next to him and this giant statue of Peter. Enormous. That's a fascinating story. Because Simon was also the name of, of course, Simon Magus. And Simon Magus, according to Eliphas Levi, was the one who became the Petra, the P-T-R, the Peter, on which, of course, today we would base this whole system. Because this Simon Magus became sorcerer to Nero. He was, in other words, the high priest, if you were, of the Roman Caesars. So whether the Peter that they're honoring over here is the apostle is really doubtful. It's probably Simon Magus, the magician, the sorcerer, the occultist that was being honored. But the church built this huge edifice over the house of Peter. And uh, at the foot of the statue, you can see the symbols of the fish and all of these, and it tells us that this is Peter, uh, the apostle. And uh, a little bit further away, there is the synagogue. So, here's this huge building out of concrete with this huge statue of Peter. Just a little way across the road is the remnant of the synagogue, probably the synagogue where Jesus taught the most. And there's a little rusted plaque which says, the late century AD white synagogue, synagogue of Jesus. Do you know, if I really was going to build one huge Christian edifice, wouldn't I build it there where Jesus spent most of his time? Why build it over a little house that's possibly the house of Peter, whether it is or not, is not unsure. It could be, because from the Bible description, it says when they came out of the synagogue, they went across to the house of Peter, and that house is right across, so it's possible. But it could also be the one next door, who knows? But it's possible. Now, this is the synagogue where Jesus actually taught. Here's another little town. So, Capernaum was the one town. The other one is Korazim. And this is what's left of Korazim. Not very much. Some ruins are left over there. These are the cities that Jesus cursed. And Jesus said, If the miracles that had been done in you had been done in Sidon or Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have accepted the message. But you had ample opportunity. Jesus walked through those cities, and not one person remained sick in those cities, and they accepted him not. Here's another famous holy place. This is the holy place of the Beatitudes. When you go in there, you better be properly dressed. This is the Church of the Beatitudes, a very famous site. And uh, Pope John Paul II has been there, of course, twice. And uh, this is the conclave And this is the field, this is probably the field where Jesus spoke his very first sermon. This is a very impressive sermon. It's the most intricate, most sublime sermon that has ever been preached to mankind. And most people today misquote this sermon to such a terrible extent. The Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3 to 10. Jesus starts off by saying... Blessed are the poor, and the word for blessed there is makarios, which means a heavenly blessing. A, a blessing that can only come from a divine source, such an enormous blessing. And the word used for poor there is the Greek tokos, which means abject poverty. Nothing but abject, abject poverty, not one mite to rub together. And he starts off his sermon, the Jews sitting there in their thousands waiting for him to announce himself as the Messiah and to say, I am the Messiah. You are the chosen people of God. I have come to set you free from the Roman yoke. You will rise and be the greatest in heaven. That's what they're waiting for. And here he gets up and the first words as Messiah that he speaks are. Blessed are the poor. And there are various words for poor in the Greek, and he uses the one which describes abject poverty. Instead of greatness and richness and, and uh, wonder and whatever adjective you'd like to apply to them, they are to be poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and the second beatitude was, blessed are they that mourn. They wanted to rejoice. They didn't want to mourn. And again, the mourning there, there are different levels of mourning in the Greek. And the Greek word there is pentio, which means abject sorrow. The sorrow that you could have for the loss of an only child. That type of Sorrow. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is a meekness that uh, is a humility that you cannot describe in human words practically. And blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And again, the word hunger there is a hunger pang that you would feel after you've been roaming around for days and days in a desert without food or water. That type of hunger and that type of thirst. What was Jesus doing there? Was he trying to destroy their demeanor? Was he trying to say something else to what they expected? He certainly was. In fact, what Jesus is doing here, he is displaying the Christian walk. That's what he's explaining. And he's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, those who realize their bankruptcy. Those who realize that they have nothing to offer. I come to Jesus with nothing to offer. I cannot say to him, Lord, I have won my tear. Can I purchase my way to heaven? I've got nothing. I am absolutely Poverty struck. I have nothing to offer but a sin-stained life. That's it. So I must come to the point where I realize that I'm poor, that I have nothing to offer. And then the very next step is, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. I must not only realize that I have nothing to offer as a sin-stained individual, I must experience sorrow for what? For sin. I must experience my sorrow for sin, and I must look at the Son of God, and I must feel sorrow, and I must have repentance. And I must say, Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry for what I have done. Genuine repentance is the next step in the Christian walk. Blessed are the meek. Once you have realized that you are bankrupt, once you have realized that you are responsible for the death of the Son of God, once you have experienced real sorrow, there's no more time to ride around on your high horse thinking that you are better than everyone else. Time to climb down and to experience humility and to know that others and God are greater than you. It's a very difficult road for mankind to travel. It's contrary to every human emotion. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be full. Your Christian walk doesn't end with realizing you're a sinner, sorrow for sin, and becoming more humble about yourself. It has to continue in a process known as sanctification which means, Lord, change my vile character. Paul says, I must crucify the old man every single day, and I must ask God to change me. And I have a perfect pattern, which is Jesus Christ, and I must say, Lord, change me into that image, that I may truly reflect me. I long to be more like you and less like me. Because really, I am pretty pathetic. That's the Christian walk. What's the next step? Once you have done this, then you can be merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You see, we tend to believe we are better than others. And then we become judgmental. One of the biggest problems in a church is being judgmental, isn't it? Now, did you know so-and-so still does this and that and the other? And, you know, that kid over there, I mean, he's on drugs. I mean, wow, what do you expect? The parents are, you know, this, that, and the other. Instead of feeding the hunger and looking at your own self and saying, well, look at yourself, what a miserable sod you are. Do you think they are any worse than you are? Why can you not have mercy and sympathy on them because God had sympathy and mercy towards you? Isn't that what it's about? So Jesus says, once you have come along this road, once you have experienced repentance, and once you have sorrowed for your sin, and once you've climbed down from your high horse, and once you ask the Lord to change you, that will make you merciful. And you will have pity on those that have not had the advantage of this insight. Blessed be the merciful And then, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I remember when I came into this church, I came in from the world. I was a hard worldling in a very cutthroat business. University is very cutthroat, and you work your way through the top. And my mind was a sewer. And I said to God, you know, I don't want to have a mind like this anymore. And God will help one to clean up the act and to develop nice thoughts where evil thoughts abound. This is the process of sanctification. Christianity doesn't stop with knowing Jesus. It's no good to know Jesus. You won't be saved by just knowing Jesus. Doesn't the devil know Jesus? Is he saved because he knows Jesus? No. We have to allow God to change us, to clean up our act. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. You see, only once you've gone through the whole series of growth aspects do you come to the peacemakers. What is a peacemaker? A peacemaker is someone who realizes the peace of God in his heart. Great peace have they who love thy law, says Psalms 119. This is a peace which is a heavenly peace. It always amazes me, When politicians take that particular beatitude, apply it to themselves, and give themselves huge awards without having gone through any of the previous steps in the Christian experience. That's not a peacemaker. A peacemaker is someone who has made peace with God. That's a peacemaker. That's a peacemaker. And blessed are they which are persecuted. Isn't that amazing? For righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What's the very last thing that that the Lord mentions here? What's the last beatitude? Blessed are they which are persecuted. In other words, if you go through this process, if you feel sorrow for sin, if you ask for forgiveness, if you allow the Lord to change your heart, if you are willing to climb down from your high horse, if you want the peace of God in your heart, you will be an irritation to the world. And they will persecute you. It's guaranteed. And that's the process of the Christian walk. Totally the opposite of what mankind in this world wants today. And the lessons that Jesus taught on the Sea of Galilee are absolutely the most fundamental lessons that mankind needs. We need to take our Bible, and we need to be aware if you have a Bible that's marked in red where Jesus speaks, you need to be aware, I must read this carefully. We read them like stories. We must read this carefully because this is God speaking directly to us. Every word is a talent of God. Every word, even the buts and the this will be in the right places for particular reasons. So we need to pay attention to what Jesus taught. Here's a typical boat out on the Sea of Galilee, the little towns around. Nothing much has changed. This is a boat that they found after a tremendous drought, and apparently it's a boat exactly like the ones that were used in the time of Jesus. So this type of boat was what Jesus would have been in with Peter and his disciples when he taught the great lessons. Take your Bibles again and read the words of Jesus, saying to yourself, this is God speaking to me. There is power in that word. Here is the tomb of Lazarus. This is where Lazarus lay. It's a very dark tomb, of course. It's a holy site today. But imagine that here Jesus called a man still in cloths in out of a tomb, proving that he is the resurrection and the life. And he did this just shortly before going to Jerusalem on the final act. Of his life's work. And as he approached Jerusalem, you can imagine what went through his mind. This is the city of Jerusalem, and the various gates of the ancient city are still there. As you come down this hill, they have built over here the little chapel of the tears. It's built like a teardrop, and if you go inside the chapel of the tears, it has this little light on the top, and There's this picture of the hen with the depiction of the mother hen gathering her chicks because Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you like a mother hen, her chicks, but you would not. The famous words of Jesus. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and he would not. Nothing has changed. The world is still exactly the same. And on the site where the temple stood today, there stands the Dome of the Rock. It's interesting here, some of the architecture. This over here is the gate to Damascus. Now, the archaeologists would have us believe that the wall is not today where it stood in ancient times. This is very significant. Because Roman Catholicism has its, uh, it has it inside the walls, the Golgotha, and the Bible says Jesus was crucified where? Outside the walls. Now that's very significant. Where was Jesus then crucified? In the Catholic Golgotha or in another Golgotha outside of the city? Now here's the present gate at the top, and what happened was here was a, a pipe burst, and the Jews had to dig down to uh, stop the pipe burst, and they came across as they dug down this gate, which is the Damascus Gate. And you can see it's right down opposite the present gate. So obviously, the wall must have been in the same place, right? So that's very interesting. The wall was in the same place. As you go into this place, this is the Damascus Gate, and these must be the actual stones where Jesus walked and where Paul walked. So if you walk there, you're actually walking on the same spot where Jesus walked. Here are the Huldah gates. These are fascinating gates. The two southern gates known as the Huldah gates, they didn't exist uh, anymore, basically, until recent times. They were built in the Second Temple period. That's from the first century. I hate this. B-C-E, before Common Era, to the first century C-E, Common Era, Thank you. We'll make that before Christ and anno domini. Uh, The gates provided access to the tunnels, which led up to the temple enclosure, and the Hulda gates were used quite often by Jesus. They're still closed today. There they are, part of the, the walls and the new construction. So Jesus must have walked up these steps as well. Here's an interesting man. That was such a nice picture. He had his donkey over here, this man, and I thought, that's a nice picture. So I took it and walked on. Biggest mistake you can make. This little man jumped on my back, shook me like a rag to see if anything would fall out of my pockets. So eventually I rewarded him for his effort. And then my friend came running down and saw him and thought, what a great photograph. And I stood there and giggled while he took the photograph and did the same as I did. And the next thing, this man was pounding him on the back and shaking him like a rag, and he asked me, why didn't you tell me? I said, no, I wanted to see the show. Why should I tell you? That's uh, what they sell there in the streets of Jerusalem. That's a carob vendor. He's got this big jar on the back with carob juice, and he leans over, and you can take one of these cups and drink from him. And this is the Jewish sector, Very different, an old grindstone over there, shops, little Jewish children, uh, lots of strife in that country. This is the old city of David. This is where they sawed Isaiah in two. Can you imagine sawing someone alive into two? And uh, pretty cruel they were. This is the, the church or the construction that is built above what was the upper room, so they say. And this here is Gethsemane. Now, if you go to Gethsemane, you have to choose which one. There are two. This one over here is the Orthodox Gethsemane. They've built this huge Orthodox church over it. And right next to it, just a little way away, there is the Catholic Gethsemane. Outside of which are these huge olive trees, and they say that these are the descendants of the olive trees that were in the olive uh, on the Mount of Olives where Jesus went to pray. Remember that Jesus there said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Wait here and watch with me. Matthew 26, 38. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great Drops of blood falling down to the ground. Luke 43, 44. There's a lot of criticism today about how, for example, uh, the movie on the passion of the Christ, which is not a very nice name for me, but nevertheless, depicts the suffering of Jesus as not being biblical. In fact, it's probably not uh, enough suffering that they depict it. I haven't seen it myself, but I have read enough about it. And I can tell you that Jesus suffered tremendously and the biblical story is very scattered and you have to pick it up piece by piece and you have to look into the history to see what probably happened to him. What happened here to Jesus in the garden was that he had such anxiety that the blood vessels in his skin burst. Now that's a medical condition that occurs sometimes today and it is very, very, very seldom that someone survives that condition. The stress and the trauma is so great when the blood vessels burst from anxiety and that uh, these people die. So what must have happened here is exactly the same thing. And Jesus could have died right here, but an angel appeared from heaven and strengthened him for what lay ahead. The Bible tells us that that night that the, Disciples forsook him and fled. Mark 14, 15. Everyone forsook him. This is the Roman Catholic uh, Gethsemane. And there is, again, the famous rock where they say, where he prayed and where the drops of blood fell. Now, you must also remember that paganism is rock crazy. They have famous sites famous caves, famous rocks, and rocks formed a very important part in paganism. But then again, in the the Bible stories, the patriarchs also made altars from rocks, but they didn't worship the rocks. They worshiped God and used them as an altar to sacrifice to God, which was a type of the sacrifice of Jesus. So it's a totally different story. So here is a holy rock, Apparently, that's where they took Jesus captive. And these must be the very steps that they led him up, because these go up to Caiaphas' temple, if you like, not his temple, his palace. And here's a depiction on the side of them how Jesus was led up the steps. Whether he was taken by ropes, the Bible does not say Today, this Roman Catholic Church has been built over the site, and this is probably a very correct archaeological site, and here was the seat of the high priest, who that year was Caiaphas. Now, there's some confusion there in the Bible, because when they brought Jesus, they took him to Annas. Now, Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and he was the previous high priest. And so, because the high priesthood sort of ran in the family, of course, the high priest of the previous year, the older one, was still honored as a high priest, although he wasn't the acting high priest. So, the Bible is often criticized for its description, but its description is spot on. And also, some of the criticism says that nobody like Caiaphas ever existed. Well, they actually found his very sarcophagus with the name Caiaphas high priest on it so that is historic as well so if we look at the trials of jesus the bible actually mentions seven trials of jesus which is fascinating because the number seven is the number of god and you will not pick this up by a casual reading of the gospels you have to read all four of the gospels and you have to piece it together very very carefully because not all of them mention all the trials of Jesus. Some will concentrate on Pilate, another gospel will concentrate on the trial of Herod. Jesus was first taken to Annas, first to Annas, and there he had a trial before Annas, and that is where the servant of Annas struck Jesus in the face, because Caiaphas warned him about what he was doing, or questioned him about what he was doing, and Jesus said, I have done nothing in secret. Ask these what I have said, because I have always preached in the synagogues. And the, the servant of Annas struck him in the face. So that was the first trial of Jesus. Then they took him with Annas to the officiating high priest that year, who was Caiaphas. So Annas and Caiaphas must have had another altercation with Jesus, a trial. From there they went to the night trial. So they had a trial at night, and the Bible tells us that Jesus was lowered into a pit, uh, prophetically, in the book of Psalms. And then they had a morning trial, because according to their law, it was illegal to have a trial by night. You had to have it when the sun came up. So there was a trial with Annas, there was a trial with Caiaphas and Annas, there was a night trial with part of the Sanhedrin. They gathered the whole Sanhedrin together, they had a morning trial, and they found Jesus guilty. And then they took him to Pilate, and Pilate tried him, but Pilate didn't want to decide by himself, so he sent him to Herod. And Herod had a trial, and didn't want to do this either by himself, sent him back to Pilate, and there was a final trial when he was handed over to the Jews. For crucifixion, seven trials in all. So this is the first place where he was. Today, of course, this is a famous site where Peter again is honored, and Mary, uh, the picture of a goddess, and on the way to the crypt, blessed sacrament chapel, courtyard of holy stairs, sacred pit, dungeon taken down. This is where the prisoners were kept when there was a night trial. And here are holes in the rock. So, what normally happened is the arms were put through over here. So, the hands went through there, up there, and the other one through there, and then they tied them up there. And there you're hung with your front to the facing the front. Now, if the Jews found someone guilty, they had the right to inflict a punishment. But capital punishment. Under Roman law, they were not allowed to inflict. They had to get permission from the Romans. So there was a Roman law. But they were allowed to inflict punishment. If they found someone guilty, they were allowed to give 13 lashes on one side and 13 lashes on the other in the front. So they found Jesus guilty. The Bible doesn't report it, but it's possible that they gave him the 26 lashes on the front. That's possible although the Bible does not say so. And here is a pit where they would lower a person down and he would be lowered down naked. And here's some Byzantine crosses that are on the wall over here showing that the early Christians recognized this as a site. You would come down this hole. In other words, you were lowered down and then you were in this dungeon in total darkness. And Psalm says, they have lowered me into the pit. So this is what must have happened to Jesus as he waited there throughout the night for the morning trial to be convened. Today you can go into the pit over there and you can have a look of it. Then from there, after the morning trial, he was taken to Pilate where he was put into this prison while he awaited trial. That's what it looks like down there. And then he was found uh, innocent. By Pilate, Pilate did not want to sentence him to death, so he sent him to Herod. They mocked him. They gave him the, his cloak. The Bible says that they they tore out his beard. They hit him in the face. Told him to prophesy. Who was hitting them? He was very maltreated in uh, that occasion. This is Litostrotos, where Pilate eventually. Sentenced him. He has still Roman games on the floor over there. And this is where Pilate said the famous words, Echo Homo, behold the man. And he was there with a crown of thorns on his head. He had been beaten. In fact, Pilate, the Bible says, and his first trial with Pilate had him beaten to gain the sympathy of the Jews. That's a pretty cowardly thing to do. Now, Roman lashings consisted of 40 lashes minus one. So they were tied around the pillar, and then they were lashed with 40 lashes minus one. And the lash that they used had a number of strains, and it had pieces of stone or metal on the front. In fact, many of the people who were sentenced to those lashes died from the lashes, just from the lashes. Because the lashes would curl down and rip open the skin and rip open the flesh. And records tell us that people that were beaten with those lashes, their entrails sometimes hung out. Just from those lashings. So that was a tremendous punishment. And then, of course, another possibility is that he was lashed twice. Because when he was found guilty in the end and sentenced to crucifixion, then you could be then you were lashed before crucifixion. The Bible doesn't say whether he was lashed both the times, but it's possible, possible that it could have happened. Now, they also claim that Pilate didn't exist. Well, here's an actual inscription that was found, the Pontius Pilus inscription, which categorically states that he was the procurator in the time of Tiberius. So, biblically, archaeologically, there is no way that the biblical story... <laughs> can be denied. So, some depict the lashing in this way, others depict that the lashing took place being bent over a horizontal pillar and lashed in that way. The Bible also says that when they put the crown of thorns upon him and they gave him a staff in his hand, that they took the staff and they hit him over the head with it. But the Greek used there depicts that they hit him over the head again, and again and again so the sufferings of Jesus were enormous the bible actually depicts that he was wounded and that the wound was one big wound that he was one big wound from the top to the bottom so Jesus suffered like no other man has suffered for anybody or any criminal act ever in the history of mankind And if God hadn't sent an angel to strengthen him, he would not even have made it. And that is why when he hung on that cross, he still forgave those who did it to him, and why he died so quickly, while the others who hung there longer had to have their legs broken, because that was a way to ensure that they stayed on the cross and didn't get off. See, if they were hung on a a, a Sabbath, on a Friday... And they didn't die on that Friday, then they broke the legs. Because otherwise, on the Sabbath, they could climb down from the cross. And that would be a disaster because nobody could catch them because it was the Sabbath. So, better break their legs. Terrible stories in those old days. And then he was, the Bible says, led to Golgotha. Now, this is the famous street, the Via della Rosa, where he must have walked. And according to the Bible, he was led outside the city. That means he must have come down this road and gone outside that gate, which used to be the sheep's gate. And he must have gone up there. That would make sense. The sheep's gate is where the sacrifices were taken to be burnt outside the city. If you are of Catholic mind, then you must have come up these stairs to go to the inner Golgotha. I'll take you to both, and I'll show you both of them. And the Bible says that he... Carried his cross, but that he collapsed under it and that uh, he had to be helped. Somebody had to take over for him. This is the famous Via della Rosa. As you go up, we were actually traveling here, walking here through a tunnel, which is known as Hezekiah's Tunnel, where we had a bad experience with stoning. And here is the famous Catholic uh, sepulture or the famous church where they claim Golgotha was. Now, fortunately for Roman Catholicism, everything fits into this one church. The place where the cross stood, plus the place where the grave is. All in one church. Very convenient for pilgrims. Uh, On the one side over here, they have this plaque. You have the pomegranates and the grapes, the pomegranates and the grapes, exactly like you would have in the temples of Baal. Exactly the same. So, interesting little pagan anomalies in this place. When you come into this Catholic Golgotha, you have the various urns hanging there with the holy salts. You have the famous stones again. Here's a man just kissing this slab. This slab over here is the one where they apparently laid the body after it came down from the cross. And here is the famous sepulcher where you go in. This is where He was buried, so they say. So this is a holy site. If you go in there and you pay the priest and he blesses you, you have absolution for a number of months. Uh, That's inside, very tiny little place. And the Bible says there was a huge stone rolled in front of the place. Here's a tiny little place in a church, which they say is the sepulcher. That's what it's like. Just turn around, you can get an idea of the size if you look at the, The candles there, they're pretty small. And that's it. That's all that you can move around. If you go up the stairs in the church, then you come to a place where people are very reverent. And that is where Golgotha was. They have all these statues of Jesus and the Mary and the women around and uh, very much gold and silver and glitter. And there is the spot right over there where the cross stood. Now, there's a Orthodox Golgotha, which is not too far away from there, and you can, in the same church, apparently, and you can put your money there, or you could put your money here. You can choose. And if you go into that spot, then, then you have a special blessing. That's something you wouldn't want to miss. So my friend and I went in there to see what there was. And then here is a rock, which they say is the skull of Golgotha. Just there, in the church. And they say that's the skull. So that's the famous Roman Catholic Golgotha which has most of the pilgrims in the world. If you come out of the sheep's gate, which today is the lion's gate, in the old days it was the sheep's gate, if you go outside and you remember that the wall is actually probably where it stood in the old days from the archaeology, then you have a problem if you are in the Catholic Golgotha because then you're inside the city. The Bible says He was crucified outside the city. Salvation is for everyone. It is not only for the select few within the city. And so, when you come out, you see this huge rock over here that still today has the face of a skull on it over there, as you see. And on top today, there's a Muslim uh, burial site. Uh, It's called the place of the skull. In actual fact, what it was, was a quarry. Fascinating. So, this was a quarry where um, Solomon had the stones dug that were for the temple. Fascinating. So, in actual fact, this whole valley, and it's part of a mountain that continued up from left to right, and actually formed the mount on which the temple stood. And it's interesting that this is the place where Abraham probably simulated in type the death of the Son of God through the sacrifice of Isaac, but God said, you do not have to provide your son, I will provide mine. And uh, so it's actually the same hill fascinating so this would this would make sense that Jesus died on top of that hill god is love god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life john 3:16 outside very close just at the base of that hill is the garden tomb and Then they took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen, clothed with spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and the garden, a new sepulcher, wherein was never a man yet laid. That's what the Bible says. So totally unlike the one inside the city, here is a garden outside. Today is still a beautiful garden. Now a garden in the Bible actually means a farm. This was a vineyard. And here's still an old wine press. So this makes sense. There's an old wine press and a beautiful little garden today, uh, the wine press from the side. And there, after a dig for excavating for buildings, they found this site. And lo and behold, here were some tombs. And in front of the tomb, if you can see over there, is a little wall. And in that wall, which acted as a furrow, they put a big round stone that could have rolled in front of that tomb. And if you look down, you will have to look into the tomb and look across, and there is a tomb that has been hewn out a little bit. So this was not finished yet. The Bible says it was not a finished tomb. No one had laid there yet. And the Bible also says that the disciples bent down to see what was inside So they could have looked in through here past that pillar and they would have seen that tomb over there and they would have known that it is empty. So this fits the biblical description perfectly. Also in that garden you have this herb that grows over there from which they make a drug that could anesthetize and that's the one that they mixed with wine and anesthetized anyone who was uh, on the cross. But Jesus rejected to drink that This is a Methodist uh, pastor who runs that place. There's a typical stone. This is the grave of Herod, one of the few intact graves of that type today, showing that that's probably what it was like. So here is the probable site of the garden tomb. There is the little furrow, and in front of it would have been this big round stone that would have had to be rolled away. That makes far more sense to me than the other Golgotha. Inside, it looks like that. Of course, people believe it's a holy site, so they come here to uh, pray and be reverent, which is fine, but on it says, is not here. He's risen. And that, to me, is the crux of the matter. He's not here. He's risen. My God, I do not have to go and seek Him in some holy place or in some dig. He's risen. I can talk to him right here. I can talk to him wherever I am. Because he can hear him. Because he is the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. John eleven twenty five. 25. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Ephesians 2, verse 8. You know, a religion based on form and formality is so empty... Once you have experienced Jesus Christ, here's the Mount of Olives, the Chapel of the Ascension. Tiny little chapel, and uh, that's apparently the place where Jesus went up into heaven. And this over here is the famous Golden Gate. It's bricked up and it's closed up, and on the other side, there's a stairway leading up to the Temple Mount, where today there's the Dome of the Rock. And here lie the graves of the richest of the rich of the Muslim world. And they believe that when Jesus returns, he will come here and the golden gate will open up, not Jesus to them, to them the Iman Mahdi, the Messiah, to the Jews the Messiah, to the Christians the return of Jesus. This gate will open up and because they happen to be lying over there, because they had lots of money to purchase that particular grave, they will be resurrected first, and they will be the first to enter into that place. How nice and convenient. Do you think it'll work like that? I doubt it. Because if they had studied the Beatitudes, they would have known what it takes to see Jesus. We have to feel sorrow for our sins. We have to repent. We have to mourn. And we have to ask Jesus to change us. And we have to come back into harmony with him and his principles. And then, we don't need that gate. We have another gate. It's a gate that has pearls on it. And it is a heavenly Jerusalem that was built by God. I don't know whether there will be much of a resurrection in the first resurrection here. I don't want to judge that. That is for God to judge. But here they are all waiting for an earthly kingdom. I'm not waiting for an earthly kingdom. I'm waiting for a heavenly Jerusalem, as exciting as this one might be. Is this the dome of the rock? Is this the place where a temple will stand? If you go inside of this one, there's a stone again. That's where Mohammed went up. But paganism and truth are very far from each other. This is Jerusalem by night. And this is the famous burnt house. That's all that's left of it. In 70 AD, the Romans came and they destroyed Jerusalem and it burnt down to the ground. And that is a type of the destruction of the world that is coming when God returns. We can either become part of burnt house, or we can become part of the kingdom of God. That is our choice. And the only solution to that is, he that has the Son has life, and he that has not the Son of God has not life. These things I have written unto you. Believe on the name of the Son of God that you m- know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5, 12, 13. So that is our choice today. We can either be hung up in all the things of this world and we can make holy places more important than God or we can develop a relationship But the price is self. We'll have to give it up and ask God to give us His character, a character that can understand, get along, and love our neighbor as we love ourselves and to let God supreme in our lives because without Him, we can do nothing. Amen. If this episode impacted you, Please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit amazingdiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.